Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Anna Palmer of Politico's Playbook helps us process the state of D.C. going into another spending fight. And we discuss othering as a foundational problem in our political dialogue. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pansy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, everybody. We are so excited to be joined by Anna Palmer. She's going to help us in the intro, get through the the major headlines and where D.C.'s at as we face another um, government shutdown at the end of this week, which, spoiler alert, she doesn't think is going to happen, but we'll see. In the main segment, we're going to talk about the power of othering people and why we're beginning to see that as the source of so many problems in our political dialogue and our uh, global world. And then, as always, at the end of this episode, we will talk about what's on our mind outside of politics. We are here this morning with Anna Palmer of Politico's Playbook. Sarah and I read the playbook religiously in the mornings and are so excited to be talking with you, Anna. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We wanted to talk with you about the deadline coming up this Friday to fund the government. Do you mind to talk with our listeners about 
just a recap. How did we get here? What does this deadline mean? And then we'll go from there. Congress over the last several years has really kind of done these stopgap funding bills where they're not on the typical um, year-long cycle where kind of a big bill should be done. So this is kind of the end of the, the last must-pass legislation before the election. And so it's kind of riddled with all kinds of things. It's $1.2 trillion uh, that you're talking about here, which is a massive price tag and a lot of conservatives are uh, upset about. Um, but it is also kind of the last... Uh, thing in town. So everybody's going to try this week. We have five days to kind of put as much other things and goodies and potential poison pills in this bill. And I was telling Beth how only in Washington, D.C. do we describe something as the last thing of the year in March. Well, it is, it's a kind of a sad state of affairs, but that is definitely true. I mean, certainly right now in the way that Congress works or, and frankly doesn't work very well is that these funding bills are some of the only things that actually get done. And so, you know, we've, we've seen this quite a few times, whether they've been trying to do DACA uh, as, a, as a rider to these and attach them to kind of the must pass in order to get anything done. But yes, it is March. And, and that's, that's basically the, the, the end of the road here. And one of my favorite things about the playbook is I feel like you guys give such a good, just a sense of the hill, like a sense of where the lawmakers are at and a sort of behind the scenes glance in the way other places don't give you that kind of coverage. So what is your sense about how likely this bill is to get through? I think it does get through. Um, again, like five days in Congress is a really, really long time. So things <laughs> sideways and then get back on track and go sideways again. Um, so I, I don't think the government's going to shut down. I would be very surprised by that. Um, people seem like they want to get this done. I think Republicans do not want to have a shutdown going into an election year and having you know voters thinking that they can't keep even the basic lights and government running. Do you have a sense of what matters? I noticed on the Sunday shows and in the news this morning that people seem to be in very different places about what's really important going into this discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, I think you're always going to have a lot of different camps about what has to be uh, in there or not in there. This is going to be a massive increase in federal spending. So you have a lot of queasiness um, on on the part of conservatives who, you know, typically for the last 10 years have said, you know, if you're going to increase, you have to cut at the same time. Uh, Donald Trump is not that kind of conservative. He wants to have a massive increase. Uh, And I think the real question is, you know, what happens with some of these you know, kind of riders, these these more specific provisions, does somebody try to attach the, the DACA provision, you know, that would give uh, undocumented yo- younger people who are here, you know, in this country from no fault of their own, you know, a pathway to citizenship. That would be something that would be very controversial. And you could see, you know, some hiccups on that for sure. Is there any momentum around that? I feel like that discussion has faded so far and pathetically into the background. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think... Just like we were talking, this is being the uh, the last must-pass legislation. If Congress doesn't have a deadline or a hard reason to do something, they very rarely act. And so right now, I think with the courts basically saying, you know, they're kind of the, the process moving through the courts, that March deadline that Trump had has passed and, and you know, and, and we've moved forward. And so I don't think that there is a huge momentum on it. They have not been able to find a way to thread the needle on it where you could have conservatives um, support some kind of a piece of legislation. 
Can you remind everybody where this stands in the court system, just to give them a sense of why the deadline isn't looming anymore? Right. So there's a couple of different court cases going on, but basically, um, I'm not an expert on where exactly it is right now. I'm going to be super honest. I don't want to overstate what I do know, but um, basically there was going to be a, a deadline and the, the courts have said that it's kind of working its way through the process. But Trump tried to, the president tried to force the decision saying, you know, you need to make this happen or not. And it, and it didn't happen. I was just going to ask you about a section of the playbook that piqued my curiosity this morning. You talked about money that was appropriated under the 21st Century's Cures Act and um, to combat opioid addiction and how mm -hmm. about three quarters of the $500 million that was sent to states um, under that legislation has not been spent because of uncertainty on how to spend it. And I'm wondering what you see in the potential legislation coming up, talking about a massive increase in federal expenditure. What What's the chance that any of that money, do, is the infrastructure there to actually spend that much money? <laughs> I, I mean, certainly it is, but I think it depends on what happens at each of the agencies. I mean, there's a process, you go, you know, Congress doesn't just write a blank check. And so they're going to have to, you know, it'll all be appropriated to you know, specific programs. And then that goes to the agencies. And you're going to, you know, you have an administration that might have different priorities than what Congress has. And so I don't, you know, you don't just kind of the government doesn't pass this bill. And then all of a sudden you're going to have this massive influx of cash immediately into the system. There definitely is like a, a process that goes forward. But yeah, I mean, I think they, this is an omnibus like this is not unsurprising. I mean, they've, they've done this, I mean, several times. So we had a lot of members of Congress arguably pretty safe members of Congress and or retiring members of Congress talking on the Sunday shows about um, the president's pretty, uh, pretty emotional, extensive tweeting over the weekend about the Mueller investigation. What is the sense you get from Congress, maybe not as safe members, especially in the Republican Party, about where they stand on the, the president's um, opposition to the investigation, now pretty openly going after Mueller and that entire situation? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a switch, right? Before mm -hmm. uh, this weekend, the president had not directly tweeted at or about Mueller, certainly around the edges. I think maybe only once he'd mentioned him directly in a tweet. And uh, this was clearly a, a, a tirade that he went on. Um, I, I think that if you put most Republican members on truth serum uh, and to, to say, what do you really think is happening? They do not think it is effective for the president to try to you know, talk about shutting down an investigation. I think you would see action on the Hill. You've already seen some bills come forward um, that would get support from Republicans that would, you know, if he tried to actually shut down the investigation. So I think there's a lot of nervousness, uh, you know, especially that this is getting closer and closer to Trump and his family and the president mm -hmm. clearly agitated about it. Yeah. And his businesses. I think that's what's really setting him off. Right. I mean, I think when he, you know, when this all started, one of the things he said is that was going to yeah. be out of bounds for him. Clearly, that is not where uh, Robert Mueller, as special prosecutor, sees that that is out of bounds. I mean, he's looking directly uh, under the hood at some of the Trump organization. Mm hmm. What leverage, if any, do Democrats have this week? Listen, they're going to need Democratic votes. And anytime they need votes for a bill, they have a, a amount of leverage. I think these deals get really done, though, um, at the leadership level. So you, this is the negotiations going to be happening between 
you know, Pelosi and, you know, Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. It's not individual members don't have as much leverage um, as you might think. Oh, that's interesting. So what are you hearing about the confirmation of Pompeo moving forward? I mean, our Senator Rand Paul has already said that he's totally opposed and their margin is so thin in the Senate. Are you hearing anything about that? So he is doing his first meeting uh, this week, at, actually today, with Senator Bob Corker, who chairs the committee. Uh, it's going to certainly be tight. I mean, I think he was already confirmed by, in a bipartisan manner. But the question is going to be, you know, how much are Democrats going to press him, I think, on uh-huh. Russia, on a lot of different things? And, you know, can he assure them that He's going to be a steady hand here for Trump. I will say I think people have given him pretty high marks um, from his position at the CIA. But the question is, you know, he had at least was on the committee and was, is a, you know, was in the military, went to, went to um, West Point. So he had some background here. He doesn't really have a background to be the uh, diplomat for this country. And so that's going to be the question is, can he show, I think, Democrats that he's go- he has the ability, the capacity, and the kind of the steady hand that I think people feel is, is necessary given the president's um, behavior sometimes. Do you think Gina Haskell has an even tougher road to go? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that, that I, I would also say, you know, when once you're a member, it's harder for them. They usually, you know, it's a club, right? And I mean, he's oh, a yeah. But, you know, he was a member of Congress. And so there is some, I think, deference that is paid to that You typically in these situations. Interesting. So as you look at the big picture here, you have these personnel confirmation battles coming up. You have the omnibus bill on Friday. Um, you have the whole Mueller investigation and the situation swirling around that. How compartmentalized are these things or will there be deals struck in some manner that ties portions of them together? Pretty compartmentalized. I mean, honestly, I think the omnibus is its own kind of beast um, that will be, you know, kind of that's the typical horse trading on Capitol Hill. I think the Mueller investigation continues to to move forward uh, in kind of its own realm. And then I I do think these, you know, kind of confirmations, we're just at the beginning of this process. I mean, I I think that's one of the things that is... um, from outsiders who aren't, you know, I'm literally sitting outside the Capitol right now, uh, who aren't in the building that, you know, these things are, they're going to take time. He's going to have to do all the meetings. There's going to be a process. I'm sure there'll be a lot of stories that, you know, and so everything kind of is on its own little timetable there. And as one of the top women covering, um, Capitol Hill, we've been watching, um, as everyone has the intense hashtag me too moment going on around the country. It seems to have died down a little bit on Capitol Hill. Is there any still movement around that issue around legislation regarding particularly the process on Capitol Hill for sexual harassment? Yeah, I do think I agree with you. I feel like it has died down. I think one of the, you know, unfortunate things uh, in our in the time that we live in is we all have very short attention spans. And so we can kind of always in the media, but I think just in general, even consumers of news, you're kind of moving on to the next thing. Uh, I do think there's there's going, you know, there's some legislation that has, you know, kind of had different uh, momentum at certain times. Congress typically, I think, and I think they would agree. I think a lot of members would say that they're bad at policing themselves. And that's what mm-hmm. it is. They're trying to, you know, put together legislation that is going to police themselves. There's already an ethics committee. There's already a lot of 
things that are potentially in place that if they took a hard look at some of these things, you know, could they, they, they don't necessarily need legislation to, you know, weed out a bad apple, whether that's, you know, a member or, you know, some senior staff. There, there's a conversation going on in America that doesn't capture the attention span, but I think it might be one of the most important ones we're having right now about non-disclosure agreements. Mm-hmm. Like that phrase won't die and keeps coming up in different contexts. You know, Gretchen Carlson did a great job of surfacing non-disclosure agreements as an issue in the Me Too conversation. Now we're talking about a very high profile NDA with Stormy Daniels and the president becoming a party to that lawsuit. And he he was a signator to the agreement, but didn't actually sign it. And now Ruth Marcus has this piece in The Washington Post talking about um, high profile individuals in the administration signing NDAs. Is there anything that you can tell us about uh, that Washington Post piece that's come out today or the mood around nondisclosure agreements in general in your reporting? Yeah, so I think this the Trump administration and the Trump campaign you know, had people sign non-disclosures, which is very unusual, I mean, for in politics, you know, um, it just, that's not usually how it's done. I think people are taking a close look at it. I, I, clearly, I mean, especially if you're thinking about this, I mean, Capitol Hill is, is really staffed by a lot of very young people who, you know, aren't, they're not bringing their own lawyer to these, you know, deals or if they're, if they're you know, required to sign um, a non-disclosure. I, I think Vox actually recently had a story about interns signing non-disclosures. And so I, I expect that conversation to continue. And it will be interesting to see if there's a best practices put in place or whether or not, you know, the, there's any kind of guidance on that. Yeah, I was interested reading uh, your take this morning about Hope Hicks and um, how she has declined so far to talk with media about her time in the White House. And I'm just wondering if there's an NDA there and what kind of pressure is on all of the people who've surrounded the president, uh, given his propensity to use the legal system as a sword. Yeah, I mean, I would say this. Hope Hicks was never a public-facing figure. I mean, as a communications director, uh, staff, I, you know, she, I, I've, I've met her. I've talked. You know, I, I think that's not how she viewed her job. I don't think anybody. I would be surprised that she's not talking because of a non-disclosure. I think that that's just not her personality. Mm, that's interesting. Well, my question too is. When you talk about capital, so often when I'm reading, when I'm reading the playbook, I think, how do you just listen and build trust? I know that there are some members of Congress who are so anxious to talk, but I'm sure that there are some increasingly um, distrustful of the press. So my first question is, um, how do you build trust with those members? And based on your sort of inside baseball view, what do you think the rest of the country doesn't understand about Capitol Hill? Oh yeah, a lot. I mean, I would say this. <laughs> I think the, I think people outside Washington D.C. would be surprised at how members of uh, members of Congress actually are, are very good relationships with the press, uh, conservatives, mm-hmm. liberals. I think that you know it's a little community up here, right? So there's yeah. 535 of them. You know, you're part of the press corps. I worked in the building. You know, five days a week. You're there for long hours. You get to know these people as people. And not necessarily the caricatures that people think them, you know, either think of Congress or not. I mean, you you travel with them. It's not that you're friends, but you have a a, a relationship that is you're going to you're going to write something. You have to see them the next day and talk to them. Mm -hmm. They don't like it. 
And so there's a lot, there's much more of a, you know, kind of an intimate relationship with the press score, I think, here. And I've, I, I don't, you know, you hear fake news from the Trump administration. And I also think that's part of a, a ploy, right, that like plays well to certain people. When you have this president, he's done more interviews with the press than, uh, you know, <laughs> most presidents have done in, in, in years. So oh, that's a good point. I think that there's some, there's a little bit of character acting, frankly. Well, and one of my favorite things that I read when, I don't remember if it was at the election or right after, Ezra Klein wrote this thing, particularly about Mitch McConnell, and that, like, everyone in D.C. sort of plays up the the emotionally political narrative, I would say particularly on the right, and they say, oh, yeah, this is the, gov- you know, the government is corrupt or fake news or whatever, whatever that narrative is, and they play it up all the while working with their Democratic colleagues, talking to the press, and you know, they kind of know it's a narrative, but the rest of America doesn't. And there's a lot of people in the country, and I think that's where you saw this populist sort of wave in the last election, who don't get what D.C. is, quote, you know, kind of really like. I work there. I understand exactly what you're talking about. And I think it was this this fury of, like, you spent all this time telling us there's all these problems, and then nothing's happening. Why is nothing happening if everything is so dire? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think there's such a big disconnect in the rest of the country from what D.C. is really like. You're you're absolutely right. There's just they're just people. You're people. They're people. Everybody's just people. It's nothing scary. You know, there's not um, a vast government conspiracy to defraud the American people. It's just people. And some of them are screw up and some of them have better motives than the others. But that's just a very hard thing to convey, especially when I think the opposite narrative can serve so many political purposes. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think it's we're in a time where there's, uh, you know, uh, heightened emotions around mm-hmm. so much. And I think that if you look at what is happening, it's people trying to do a good job. They, they might disagree. They might disagree, you know, on a lot of different things. But, you know, one of the things that I, and I, I'm not the first person to say this, but I do believe is that, you know, members don't spend as much time here so they don't get to know each other as people. Yeah. Well you know, from the right or from the left. And I think that they're, that really misses something because, you know, if you know somebody and they do something that, you, you know, is an anthema to your political beliefs, but you know that they're, you believe they're a good person, you know, you can agree to disagree, but not be disagreeable. Right. Well, that's what we talk about a lot on the show is that we've just sort of lost the ability to disagree without being disagreeable to say, like, we both want what's best for the country. You might disagree about how to get there, but that doesn't mean we have to be enemies. So I think that's great. that, And I, that's why I love your reporting, because I think your reporting from the Hill shows that side of it a lot. I still don't know how sometimes you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to tell everybody I know that it was you that told me that. Sometimes I read, I'm like, what I wouldn't give to know who told her this. <laughs> no, it's fun. You know, uh, Playbook is a really, it's, it's been a great, we've been doing it 18 months now. Uh, it's been a great vehicle. But it is, it's really, I think, I appreciate your compliments because I think we try to really peel back a layer of what actually happens and kind of, you know, be not just not just reporting, but try to explain to people, demystify Washington happening uh, here every day. Well, we love it. We read it every morning. We thank you so much for coming on our show. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day, Anna. All right. Hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks again to Anna Palmer. We can't recommend the playbook highly enough. If you like to keep up with the morning's headlines with a little bit more complexity and uh, background information. And speaking of background information, we are loving celebrating Women's History Month by highlighting um, a different woman whose story maybe hasn't been told enough. Sarah, who do you have for us today? 
For this week's Women's History Month Minute, I wanted to share the story of Lee Young-soo, who participated in one of the most tragic episodes in our global history, particularly with regards to World War II. Lee was kidnapped at the age of 16 from her home in South Korea and her family and forced to participate in the military brothels run by the Imperial Army of Japan during World War II. What began um, in a reaction to the the Battle of Nanking in 1937, where the Japanese troops raped between 20 and 80,000 Chinese women, um, it began as a as a reaction to that, as a way to if we if we travel with military brothels, it will prevent our military from doing this again. And it began with volunteers from legal prostitutes and ended with the kidnapping forcible rape and murder of hundreds of thousands of women from occupied territories in China, Korea, even um, some Danish women. And it didn't even end at the end of World War II. There was reporting from the Associated Press in 2007 that United States authorities allowed comfort stations to operate well past the end of the war and that tens of thousands of women in the brothels had sex with American men until Douglas MacArthur shut the system down in 1946. So the estimates are between 20,000 to 410 women were enslaved in over 125 brothels. Um, 90% of them were dead by the end of the war. They suffered incredibly traumatic treatment. Um, Lee reports being raped four to five times a day, upwards of 20 times a day, and they were tortured if they refused. So this was an incredibly tragic, arguably humanitarian crisis and war crime by the Imperial Army of Japan. And for decades afterwards, Lee and women like her were silenced and um, sort of treated as outcasts from their native countries and among their communities. And then in the 90s, Lee began to speak out with other women. In 1991, with the late Kim Hong-sung spoke publicly for the first time about her past as a sex slave in the Japanese military, and Lee found the courage to speak up as well. She registered with the Korean government as a victim and began um, a long career in activism that continued up until recently when she was at the state dinner when Donald Trump recently made a visit to South Korea. She received her master's degree and participated in tribunals about the um, war crimes and the um, treatment of the comfort women all across the globe. And I'm going to share more about that on Patreon. We're doing expanded Women's History Month minutes on Patreon. So I will talk about... um, what Lee Young-soo has done since the 90s and how she used this tragic experience as a comfort woman um, to really um, lead a a totally different second half of her life, um, bringing justice for these women. That is a heartbreaking story. Thank you for sharing it. And we will take a short break and come back and talk about some more heartbreak happening in our country and around the world and what we think might be at the root of it and how we might dig ourselves out of it. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. A few weeks ago, we had a conversation about living in the South, and I expressed how frustrating it is to be from a place I love and a community I love and feel like it's welcoming, but that it's always on the wrong side of history. And Carrie Anderson, our resident Middle East expert and awesome person, had the most insightful comment. She wrote into us and talked about what she thinks is sort of behind the um, some of this this paradox we feel as being Southerners because she's seen it in so many other communities um, around the globe that she's worked in. And so we asked her to sort of 
share some of her thoughts on this so that we could deep dive into conversation about um, what's at the source of some of this paradox in the South and around the globe and what we feel like is sort of one of the biggest problems generally in political dialogue right now. So here's Carrie. Hi, this is Carrie. I've heard you several times discuss the issue of finding the balance between individual and community priorities. I've had experience in cultures that put a higher priority on community or group interests and identity than on individual rights and identity, and that build moral structures around a focus on the community. My experience with such cultures is mostly in the Middle East, though of course cultures that prioritize community and group interests exist around the world, including within some American subcultures. My experience in such cultures, along with an academic and professional background studying various conflicts, has led me to very strongly reject community-based morality. I say this understanding that, as an educated middle-class American, I have a natural bias in favor of individual rights. Still, I have come to believe that community-based morality systems, or tribalism, to use a more controversial word, is responsible for the vast majority of mass suffering throughout human history, as well as extensive individual suffering. Cultures that emphasize the importance of a community identity over individual identity make it very easy to demonize the other. If we wonder how people can do horribly violent things to even innocence and conflicts, it's because they see them as the other and not even as fully human, and that therefore their acts are morally justified in defense of their own group. It's very easy to encourage a group to go to war or commit violence when you can simply argue that the other group is threatening yours, and so you must defend your group's interests or identity. In the conflicts that I have studied, I see this emphasis on group identity as essential to enabling violence. This includes everything from genocides and appalling wars, such as the Holocaust of World War II, the Rwandan genocide, the Balkans War, and the Syrian Civil War to also including lower-intensity conflicts, such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Northern Ireland conflict. Even on an individual level, community-focused cultures almost always end up handing power to certain people who can then easily abuse that power by arguing that they have to keep people's behavior in check in order to preserve the group's social fabric or moral system. For example, how can it be that village elders in Pakistan order the gang rape of a village girl, which has happened several times. It's because they're justifying the action by saying the needs of the community to protect its honor or to maintain compliance with certain norms outweigh any of the girl's rights. Indeed, in their mind, she has no rights because she is a property of the community and not an individual with value. Same for honor killings, abuse of homosexuals, and millions of other cases just in modern history alone. I don't mean to say that we shouldn't consider the balance between individual and community needs, which is always important, or that we shouldn't consider the downsides of individual-focused morality. While my personal preferences are clear, I'm not trying to assert which form of morality is objectively superior, which seems like an unhelpful debate to have anyway. I only mean to say that I strongly believe that any culture based on the idea that the community's identity and interests are more important than the individual's will always be deeply vulnerable to violence against another community and to abuse of power by those in charge of the group. I think
think Carrie's comments are so insightful because having some connection to other places, other moments in time really helps me get my mind around what's happening. Mm-hmm. As silly as I feel in my Patreon segments going so deep into like Ukrainian history to understand the Mueller indictment of Paul Manafort, I also am learning so much that helps me better understand what we're witnessing today. So I think Carrie's context is enormously beneficial, especially as we continue to grapple with, as we often do on in our discussion, Sarah, with what is the balance between caring about the individual and caring about the community. You know, I love connection. I think connection is the source of human happiness. And I guess I was thinking about that. I think about that often through my role as certain groups, like living in Paducah, being a member of my family. But I think Carrie so beautifully teased out why that can be dangerous. Because I've also been thinking about um, sort of the pushback we've been getting from so many listeners when I say, when I even imply that there could be a positive effect of the Donald Trump presidency or when we were talking when we talk about gun violence or when we talk about abortion that it's not just about the community you live in it's not just about um, sort of the group you identify with because we do this we make all these different policy views a part of identity and so that means that anyone who doesn't support those policy views is opposed to us and that othering that you're not with me, so you're against me, I am really beginning to believe is the source of all evil. I'm not even kidding. It just plays out in so many ways. One thing I know people are anxious to hear us talk about is the firing of Andrew McCabe over the weekend. So to take a quick detour on that, Andrew McCabe is a career FBI um, official. He was to turn 50 this weekend and retire upon his 50th birthday. A couple of months ago, he announced his intention to retire. The president tweeted that it was wrong for him to be allowed to retire. The president has long had a chip on his shoulder about Andrew McCabe, in part because of his wife's political activity. There is no evidence that I've seen that shows anything improper that Andrew McCabe has done. But over the weekend, apparently upon a recommendation from the inspector general, there uh, Attorney General Sessions decided to fire Andrew McCabe for a lack of candor in conversations about his investigation actually into Hillary Clinton and some unauthorized disclosure to the media. That report hasn't made it out yet, so it's unclear what merit it has. But the president, after Mr. McCabe was fired just short of his retirement date, and there's some effect on his pension. It's unclear to me what the entire effect on his pension is. I've seen people say that he won't get any of it. I've seen people say, no, it would just uh, detract from the amount that he would get. Members of Congress have offered him jobs so that he can finish out his service to get his full pension. Whatever the case may be, the president then takes to Twitter to celebrate his firing, which seems to me to be such a manifestation of this idea of othering that every single human being is either with me or against me. I've had to fire a lot of people in my career, and there are a couple of things that I've learned from doing that. The first one is it should be hard in all circumstances. No matter why you're firing someone, if it's not excruciating for you, whether you made the decision or you're just carrying out someone else's decision, if it is not excruciating for you, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it probably means that you need some support and some change in your life. The other thing is, when you're firing someone, it should really be about upholding that person's dignity in the process. And you should remember 
that firing that person is step one of many steps because anytime you let someone go, it has a massive impact on all of their colleagues. None of those things were honored in this scenario. And I think it is because to the president, Andrew McCabe Mm -hmm. doesn't look like just a human being who had a job. It's because he's labeled him a political enemy. And for so much of the country to just accept that speaks to me of a deep problem here. And so one of our listeners sent us um, Pod Save the People with DeRay McKesson had a conversation with Brene Brown, and it was so good. They talked about race. She talked about how the she started having people walk out of her talks when she talked about Black Lives Matter, but that she has more people walk out in progressive cities when she mentions not basically um, dehumanizing Trump's family, which I thought was very interesting. And, you know, we've had several conversations about this recently um, on the podcast and on Twitter. The other thing that Brandy Brown said that I thought was so good is she said, like, shame and belittling and humiliation are the tools of oppression. They will never be the tools of social activism. Like, if you are concerned about the rights of individual if you are concerned about the threat of tribalism against just basic human rights, and whether that looks to you like the Trump administration or the civil war in Yemen, like we're never going to fix that by making by dehumanizing someone, even Donald Trump, even members of this of this administration, like we're never going to get there. And the more I think about it, the more I just see sort of this dehumanization, this othering, as it's such a fuel. It's such a fuel to people's fire. And it's like, if you don't do that, then you don't care much. You don't see the threat as much as I do. That's what I hear from people so often, right? Like, if you don't think that Donald Trump is the second coming of Hitler, then you're just not paying close enough attention and you don't care enough. And so how dare you say anything even remotely positive about him or his administration? Like I even this is a dumb example, but I often saw I was thinking about this with Roseanne when Roseanne came out on as she's got the new show and it came out during the Oscars and people were like, She's human garbage. How dare they even entertain the show? And I'm like, dang y'all, like is that really the way to proper is that the proper reaction? Like, first of all, I'm excited about the new Roseanne. I don't even feel bad about it. And I'm not gonna just discard her, not to mention every other human being involved with that show as human garbage because I don't like her political support of Donald Trump. Like, it just seems like we've just made that such an acceptable thing to do. I'm sort of obsessed with the Milgram experience experiment where the, if, you know, if someone in authority says the experiment must continue, like, what source will, what links will go to um, in harming other human beings. There's also this crazy new show on Netflix called The Push. Have you heard about this, Beth? Mm-mm. It's like another experiment where they basically – manipulate, manipulate, and push people until they literally push another human being off a building because they're basically being told to. I haven't watched it. My husband watched it. He said it was bananas. But, like, I have this sort of obsession with, like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person who keeps shocking someone because the experiment must continue. And so I just think that this, the the resistance to dehumanizing even someone as horrendous as Donald Trump, for me, is really, really important because... What I've been thinking about a lot and when I think the conversation with Brene Brown and Carrie's point about the the risk of tribalism is you don't need to dehumanize someone to find justice. You just don't. That's not necessary. And But you do need to dehumanize someone to be cruel. 
And that's not my values. And I want to avoid cruelty at all costs. And there's just this sort of, I'm not going to lie and say I don't feel even it's like a little bit of a gendered conversation around this. Like you're not paying close enough attention. You don't care enough. You're not angry enough. No, I'm just not going to dehumanize and other someone in the search for justice because I don't think that's required. I think it's such a good point. It gets to the McCabe situation, right? Yeah. Because if he did something wrong, he could be fired in a way that does uphold his dignity. Mm -hmm. It is possible to make that difficult decision to end someone's employment and still treat them as another human being. It's possible in the criminal justice system to impose accountability while still upholding people's dignity. That's the whole idea of our criminal justice system. We're going to have David Singleton on from the Ohio Justice and Policy Center soon, and David talks consistently about fair, intelligent, redemptive justice, Mm -hmm. that you absolutely hold people accountable, but you don't write them off as people. Yeah. Even Donald Trump. (laughs) Even, I know, I know that's, I mean, I feel like that is like the most revolutionary thing you could say right now is Donald Trump is deserving of human dignity. Honestly. I think that you're right about that. We have just made everything politically so high stakes and it is high stakes. What is also high stakes is our capacity for our humanity, though. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think you can see Donald Trump clearly. It's like the poem I reference all the time. You can see Donald Trump clearly for what he is. At the same time, you can see Donald Trump as connected to all other things in the universe. Yeah. Rob Bell um, has his podcast, The Robcast, and one of his most recent episodes is called The Endless Invitation. It's probably not everybody's cup of tea. But it explains something that I've been thinking about in a more articulate way than I ever could have gotten to it. He talks about how we have to evolve in our consciousness from being egocentric. And he talks about the importance of having an ego. It is really important to have a healthy ego. That's why we let our children beat us in board games. That's the example that he gives, and I think it's a great one. You must have a healthy ego because if you don't have a healthy ego, you can never transcend being egocentric. Mm which I think we see in Donald Trump, right? So then once you transcend the ego, you become more tribe-centric. And it does become about whatever community of people with which you most strongly identify. And then you transcend that to become more world-centric. And then you can transcend that and become more cosmos-centric, right? You can have the biggest, broadest perspective possible. But each time... You don't lose the level of consciousness that you just transcended. He talks about transcend and include. Mm. So it's not that I lose my ego by going to the tribe. That becomes cult-like, right? If you lose your ego and and the tribe comes first over all their things, then you have lost a healthy perspective. And once you become more world-centric, you can't just get bogged down in all the problems of the world. You have to keep the tribe and the ego in mind. I love that idea. I think that's so genius. Of just building on consciousness instead of discarding. And I think that part of what we've done in American politics is elevate our political tribe above our egos Mm -hmm. in some circumstances because we we lose our individual values and principles by engaging in in these tribal conversations. And we certainly preclude ourselves from transcending to the next level of consciousness. And I think you really – because, you know – Nobody else can talk about my mama, but I can. I really think you see this in the left. I think you see this 
you know, they talked about the Brene Brown and then talked about this. I thought it was so good. They said, you know, like my favorite quote she said is rage is a great catalyst, but it's a shitty life companion. Like you can't be consumed with never having a moment of gratitude or never having a moment of joy or never feeling connected to those around you because they're suffering in Yemen. That's unsustainable. That's how we get to the Lottie Moon situation we've talked on this podcast before. Like, you can't do that either. You can't, you can't, um, you can't give and help and serve if there's nothing inside of you with which to give and help and serve. And I think that's what you hear, you feel so much from the left too. Like, it was so interesting. They had this conversation about the, um, quote, the, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. The, I think it's Otter Lord quote. And basically this idea that like it's so it's so it's being interpreted as so pessimistic, as so cynical, like there's nothing you can do. And he's like, that's not the quote. That's not you gotta read the rest of the speech. That's not the rest of the speech. The rest of the speech is, you know, how what's the next thing to do? What's the next way to um move forward? And it's not just about that we're stuck in this system. And we can't ever dismantle it. Yeah, we can, but it, it it's not it's not as cynical as the quote pulled out by on its own. And she talks about like, yeah, it's got to be a bigger perspective. And the mo- and that, like I said, like I think one of the most revolutionary things you can do in trying to move out of that us versus them situation and sort of mindset is to listen and to give humanity to the other side and to acknowledge the basic human dignity of every human being on this planet and how we are all connected as much as sometimes we don't want to think that we are. Because to me, I, I think I think that I'll, the way to prevent that in yourself is to acknowledge that it could happen. Not to think I'm above it, I would never be like that, but to acknowledge I could. So how do I prevent that? What leads to that? How do I think through the, how the human brain gets in a place where it can, you know, kidnap teenage girls and turn them into comfort women? Like, how do I get to that point so that you, you short-circuit it, and you acknowledge the the path that all human beings can take to that sort of cruelty. I think that's the only way to do it. I think so, too, and I think that requires a level of honesty mm-hmm. about how the other is always a mirror for us, mm-hmm. and that's our most fundamental problem. What's the most – what are the great stressors between right and left? They're the same. It's resenting the sense of moral superiority from the other side. Both parties do that, right? Mm-hmm. It's resenting hypocrisy Mm -hmm. from the other side. We are all hypocrites. Mm -hmm. Can we open ourselves up to recognizing that we're all hypocrites, that we all think that we're right about everything all the time? I was having a conversation with Mariana Mansuko, who we're going to have on the podcast at some point. She um, has been a contributor to Fox News in the past, and she writes a great blog about uh, Floridian politics and other issues. And it was great to talk with her because I feel like we're very like-minded on a number of issues, and that doesn't happen for me super often. And we were talking about the Republican Party, and I put my finger in that discussion with her on something that I hadn't quite articulated before. Part of what is so heartbreaking for me about Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. It's one of many things. But one of those things is realizing that there is no space in the Republican Party for difference in thought at this point. Mm -hmm. You are immediately a rhino or a liberal in disguise if you have any difference in thought from where the president is or from where the base is. 
And I'll, and I'll be very honest and vulnerable in saying that that's something I always believed to be true about Democrats, but not about Republicans. <laughs> I believed that Democrats forced this kind of litmus test. You're with us or against us on all these issues. And the truth is, so does the Republican Party. And in a very exaggerated and I think dangerous way to both the country and the party's long-term survival now. But but I think that's true of all othering. I think this is why mm-hmm. we do this to each other, because we look across and we see something reflected back to us that is very much a part of us, and we don't like it, and so we just resist it. I just don't think that we can ever get to the point of listening, of understanding what is reflecting back that we don't like, of understanding that we're not going to get it all right until we are radically to the universal truth that there is human dignity that connects us all, that every person is deserving of that human dignity, even Donald, even Ivanka, even Kim Jong-un. Like, everyone is a human person. That You do not—I just—there seems to be this narrative that you cannot— there is no justice without turning them into a monster. And I cannot get on board with that. I just reject that wholeheartedly. The idea that justice requires stripping someone of their dignity and treating them as something other than a human being. I just, that is not my values. And if that makes me weak or if the implication is that I just don't really understand the risk of the Donald Trump administration, then fine, whatever. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I have to be at peace with myself and how I handled this period of history. I have to explain it to my kids how we got here, and I'm just not going to do it. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And... Even with toddlers, like you can get them involved and this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky, 
and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I'm glad you brought up Kim Jong-un because I had so many thoughts after our discussion about abortion, our discussion about discussing abortion, I guess. (laughs) And I was thinking about coming to the conclusion that it's important to hear from Claire because I want to share this country with Claire, right? Mm -hmm. It's important to hear from people I disagree with on all manner of topics because I want to be in the world with those people. Or even if you don't, they're not going anywhere, as I always say. Right. But thinking about that with North Korea, I want to share this planet with them. I mean, that conflict puts that into very sharp relief. When you're talking about nuclear weapons, yes, I want to share the planet Earth with North Korea. So what do we need to do to make that happen? Now that we have the capacity on both sides to potentially destroy that possibility, what do we need to do to make that happen? And that does not mean that all things are equal. That doesn't mean that we don't take a very strong stand against North Korea and what they stand for. It also doesn't mean, you know, I was thinking about representing a perspective that is so different from our own on the podcast. We had Claire on because Claire's views still uphold human dignity. Mm -hmm. They are fundamentally about her belief in human dignity, right? We would not have someone on the podcast to give us the Nazi view of the world. right? You know, there are still very bold lines. Doesn't mean we don't want to share the planet with them and doesn't mean we don't believe that they are capable of redemption. But we're not going to give our platform to that voice. And we wouldn't just roll over to North Korea. We, I, I think I'm trying to say exactly what you were saying about Donald Trump. You can see it for what it is and you can take a strong stand against it without losing the perspective that we're still all people. And like even even with Nazis, because I know that's the that's the the sort of third rail end of the world example everybody goes to. There can be justice for Nazis without treating them as less than human. Yeah, that's right. I I, I believe that. You might not. And that is a worldview. 
You might not believe that, and I'm not saying that that makes you a bad person. Maybe you believe that there is no justice without a certain amount of um, stripping someone. Or if you, if maybe you believe that someone, to a certain extent, sacrifices their right to human dignity. Maybe you do. I don't. Because I believe that we're all connected, I think something is sacrificed by all of us when that happens. I think so, too. And again, that doesn't mean that everything is squishy and equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need a different world. For, we need a different word for that. Like, yeah, I think you're right. I think it becomes about that means they're equal. And we need a different word for what it means to acknowledge someone's human dignity and still cry out for justice. Like, we need a word for that. I don't know the right word. There are so many people who I love dearly who do not believe same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. I strongly disagree with them. I think that perspective does take away from another person's dignity. Mm-hmm. So I am not going to have someone on the podcast to talk about that issue. Right. Because I don't want to lend our forum to the extent that we have one to someone who espouses a perspective that I think detracts from human dignity. So I am in a very I have a very hard stance on that, right? Legislatively, mm-hmm. I would have a very hard stance on that if I were voting on issues related to marriage equality. I still love those people. Mm -hmm. I love them very much. I do not think of them solely in terms of that position. And it's hard. And we got a lot of pushback when we talked about this with racism. You 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 can see, I think, the racism inherent in some people and still love those people and still not reduce them just to racist, while at the same time, vigorously opposing them and trying to change their minds as best you can through loving example. It's really hard, and we don't have good words for it, and we certainly don't have good examples of it. But I think this is fundamentally how we get ourselves out of the ditch that we're in as a country right now. Well, and I think about what – not to make this all about Brene Brown, but like where she says um, people are doing the best they can. Now, sometimes their best is dangerous, And we have to deal with that reality. So, I mean, I think that that's what it is, right, is dealing with the the consequences and the reality of their position without making it about them as a human being as less. You know what I mean? Like, I think that you just have to deal with your best as a Nazi or whatever, fill in the blank, is dangerous to everyone else. And we're going to deal with that. But we don't have to make you a monster to deal with that. We don't have to make you less than human to deal with the reality of your the, and the consequences of your belief system or your actions. And that's true of Donald Trump. Like we don't like I said, like you can oppose Donald Trump. Justice is available. Activism is available. But when we because when we do it to him and then it becomes about anyone who supports him or anyone who we disagree, we agree with on 95 percent of the thing, but might want to watch Roseanne. You know what I mean? Like it just. It just gets bananas out there. It does. And I don't know where we learned, but I do think this gets back to Rob Bell's point about how you must have a healthy ego to be able to transcend and include it in other levels of consciousness. I do think it gets back to a very real fear that we all have that we are not enough. Mm. I think about the pushback that you and I get anytime we have any criticism for standard medical practices. And I think that's because socially we have created a very real fear for doctors of lawsuits, of being labeled a hack, 
um, or unqualified. Mm-hmm. When instead, we could be talking about those issues in the, in the Brene Brown terms if they're doing the best that they can based on what they know. And maybe what we know needs to expand or maybe there needs to be some softness or maybe we, we as patients need to step up and take on more of the risk in participating in these decisions and take on more of the responsibility. I think this gets to the Trump administration's perspective on opioids. When they talk about increasing the death penalty in connection with opioid addiction, that is so much the, we have a problem, so let's find a villain Mm -hmm. to blame it on. When that is so divorced from the reality of opioid addiction, I can barely take it seriously. You know, Talking about the death penalty in connection with opioids, what you're talking about, who, who are you going to kill? Pharmaceutical industry executives? Yeah. Doctors? Since Doctors? 75% of them are from legal prescriptions? I mean, and it's, I mean so, it, it's so representative of the whole Duarte thing. Like, yeah, well, let's just take out, let's just kill the addicts. I mean, you know, this, there's this line of thinking, this continuing of let's blame someone. And by blame, we mean exact justice at the cost of their life. Then... Where do, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a slippery slope because I'm opposed to slippery slopes, but <laughs> I think that, but there's no room. No. You've backed yourself mm-hmm. into a corner. There's no room in there and there's no grace in there. And there's, look, I say that the pharmaceutical industry has a major part in opioid addiction. And I still believe that it is not wrong to make profit from selling prescription drugs. Like there's complexity in that position. There are pros and cons to all of it. We've got to stop acting like everything is good or bad. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're – the genius of Rob Bell's framework and why, why we do this and the risk of it is when you do not maintain your own ego, which is to say my identity as a child of God or my identity as a human being with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is maintained in safety in my, inside my own – personhood, no matter what happens in this community fight for clean water or the the national fight for DACA recipients or the global fight for peace and opposition to nuclear war. Like, if you can't maintain that, then everything is so high stakes that anything can be justified. When when the stakes are are Either you're where you live or the country or the globe, well then what's not justified to save so many? Right? What's not justified? What what violence, what um, cruelty cannot be justified if you're on the side of righteousness for the whole globe or for your the whole country or even for your local community, right? And that sounds, depending on what side you are righteous and great, right? These people who will like cut oil lines in order to save the planet or, you know, people who are blowing things up to oppose the Vietnam War. Like it, it's depending on where you are, but a few clicks in the other direction and then it seems really monstrous because it's not your issue. And that's where, that's the danger, right? Then that's the danger when we're sacrificing children who are being abused for the greater good of the Catholic Church or we're sacrificing you know, young girls for Olympic glory or whatever it is. I mean, I just think that that's the risk, right, is it sounds good when it's your side and the stakes are so high and you believe you're on the side of righteousness, but everybody else does too. 
And that is not to say that everything is relative. There are some things that are absolute. There are some things that are right and wrong and are worth fighting for. It's not every single thing. And it's not every single thing to a degree of everything we have is worth sacrificing. And I think that if you boil down American political dynamics right now, and and political dynamics outside of America as well, Mm -hmm. there is a sense that whatever today's fight is, is the existential fight and we're willing to sacrifice anything over it. Yeah. And especially because social media gives us the capacity to not only pay attention to everything at once, but to find out the people who agree with us that, yep, you're right, this is the fight worth, this is the hill worth dying on, and anyone opposed to you is the enemy. And so what can we do about that? I think in a very small way, it starts with having a little grace for each other. Mm -hmm. So I think about the situation that people who voted for Donald Trump find themselves in. If I had done that, if I had made that call, I can see where it would feel very difficult to be critical of anything because I would constantly feel defensive of that vote. Mm -hmm. And it is true. It takes a cursory glance at Twitter for someone to remind you that if you voted for Donald Trump, you must hate fill in the blank. Babies, Whatever group is important to them. (laughs) Right. But that is why I think... You have people who are very morally rigorous for themselves and their faith communities defending the president's relationship with an adult film actress Mm -hmm. while his wife was having a baby, right? You have people defending things that they would find intolerable in their lives and the lives of people in their immediate communities, Because if they don't do that, if it still isn't that he was the better choice for them, Mm -hmm. we turn them into monsters. Yeah, because they're not really defending him. They're defending themselves. Their vote. That's right. They're defending their decision. It is okay to say, I made the best decision I could at the time based on the information available to me. Today, my perspective has changed. Or today, I think this is wrong. Mm -hmm. I might, you know what I mean? I might even still think that was the right decision for me at the time. But today, this decision is, this decision that he has made is wrong and I stand against it. We are allowed to have some complexity in our viewpoints. And I think that if we could start to give each other a little bit of grace in that way, and there are countless examples on the, uh, with that script flipped, right? There are countless examples of ways that we can give each other a little bit of room. And I think that that will help us come back to a sense of, oh, we're all just people doing the best that we can. Well, I think saying we're just people doing the best we can is the the um, best way to wrap up a segment clearly driven by Brittany <laughs> and Carrie's awesome insight. So thank you for joining us. I know this is hard stuff to talk about. Um, in the next segment, we're going to talk about something a little lighter and a little more fun, which is what's on our mind outside politics. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I just finished up A Week in the Life, which is a documentary project I do every year where for a week I just write down everything we do, everywhere we go. I take pictures everywhere we go. Um, It's a lot of work. I'm really glad it's over. But I was looking – I've been doing it since 2010, and I was looking back over the last years, and I'm just so glad I did it. It's so – because we take pictures of, like, Christmas and birthdays, but we sort of – 
rarely capture our everyday life and you think you're going to remember, but it's so fun to go back and look at my schedule from when I just had one kid and when I thought I was so busy. And now I'm like, oh, my God, why are you watching four hours of television at night? It's just I, I love it so much. It's so much. It's so much fun. But I am glad it's over. And if you want to know more about it, um, you should check out Allie Edwards. That's where I got the idea um, a million years ago in Real Simple Magazine. But she has the most amazing website, the most amazing tools, and she does a lot of projects beyond just um, Week in the Life, these sort of documenting your everyday life that um, I absolutely love. We talked about her with the one little word at the beginning of the year. I also do her December Daily Project, so definitely check out AllieEdwards.com if you think you might be interested. How is it for you to do that without Facebook? Um... Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, I was doing it before I was on Facebook all the time, so I, it wasn't. I didn't feel that different, actually. Truthfully, I I feel like I was a little more committed to it because the past couple of years I got kind of burned out on it, and I think it's because I take a lot of pictures every day and post them on Facebook, and because I'd been taking a break, I was sort of like ready to get my camera out and really go to work documenting it. So I probably should do like maybe a break before I do it every year because I think it did help me stay more motivated. Because I always love following – I love it when you do that because I like seeing the pictures. I remember a picture of you guys making pancakes or something that was so sweet. And I thought, this is such a great idea. Yeah. So I wondered what it was like for you since you had given up Facebook for Lent. Oh, and well, I'll be talking about that extensively on The Nuance Life when I'm all over. I got so many thoughts. But go ahead. What's on your life outside of politics? I got some alone time this weekend. Ooh. Like truly alone. Chad took our girls to visit his parents over the weekend. We were supposed to go to a concert and decided for a number of reasons. I decided for a number of reasons that I would rather stay at home. And so that was an excellent decision that I made. Chad drove the girls himself down to the two hours to his parents' house. So for about four hours, I was really just here by myself I got my work done. I got my phone calls taken care of. Um, He was having friends over later to watch basketball and play cards. So I decided to make snacks for them. You know the scene in Cinderella when the birds are helping her sew her dress and they're all just like singing and floating around while they're busy? That was me in the kitchen baking some cookies, making some nacho dip. Like I was so – I felt so light and at peace just buzzing around my kitchen doing exactly what I wanted to do with some music playing. It was fantastic. And I realized that I don't get enough of this in my life. And I felt almost guilty about how much I enjoyed it. Like there was this little moment when I thought, should I be missing my kids more? But I didn't. I love them, but I didn't miss them. And I just, it it just called out to me like how rare it is for me to truly be by myself and how much that fills me up and how I've got to do it more often. Okay, so I'm an only child. Alone time is essential to me. I get really mean. Here's my experience about the missing the kid thing. This could make me sound like a bad mother. I'll put it on the record. I'm not scared. Um, I always miss my kids. I'm like, they're saying goodbye to them. I'm like, oh, I love you. I'm going to miss you so much. And then I do the um, yeah, Brene Brown-themed episode, foreboding joy, like, oh, my God, something's going to happen to them. Then they leave, and they go on their lives, and I go on with my life, and then I don't really miss them again until I, like, either talk to them or it's time to come home. Does that make me sound like a bad mother? No. I decided that I'm not a bad mother. I said to one of my pastors on Sunday, I really love them. It was really nice to be alone. And she said, you don't need to say you really love them. Like, you obviously do. That's, well, and they it do is the same totally thing. fine not to miss them. you ever to somebody who's taking care of them and they're like, they were fine till you called? Like, they're not walking yeah. around missing you either. 
It's just like when you get reminded of each other that you're like, oh, yeah, I do miss you. But then everybody goes back to their lives. It's okay. Our girls got in the car and said, can we come back next weekend? They didn't miss us either. And that's good. That makes me feel like we've done our job. That we have these healthy, independent kids who can go enjoy this time with their grandparents. I know that it is exhausting to have them, which also makes me feel a little bit better. Like, I I don't think badly of my mom or Chad's mom when they say it was really fun and I'm really tired. Yeah, that's so and true. And that's how I feel. And we take care of them all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes. That's a good point. And it's really wonderful and I'm really tired. And it was really nice to have some time alone. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsu Politics. We appreciate you always coming along for the conversation, especially when we're talking about giving human dignity to Donald Trump. I'm a little scared of social media. We'll make it. Um, This week on The Nuanced Life, we're going to be talking about seasonal living um, with a very special guest. We're excited about that conversation. And until Friday, keep it nuanced, y'all. This episode is brought to you by Everlywell. Finding the time to get a lab test is almost impossible. But now, it's easy to order the test you want at everlywell.com. Everlywell is an at-home health testing company that offers a variety of tests, from food sensitivity to metabolism to thyroid. No more sitting in waiting rooms or waiting on your results. Head to everlywell.com and use promo code PANTSUIT to take 15% off your order. Everlywell, your test on your time and on your terms. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash Politics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.